It has been uh, a difficult week, you know, it's been weird here in the city of Baton Rouge. Um, you know, the, the sovereignty of God guiding things along, that over our summer groups we've talked about spiritual warfare, we've talked about the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we talked about cultural engagement, and even last Sunday talking more specifically about cultural engagement, you know, and so then... Uh, you know, Alton Sterling is, is shot and killed, and that becomes a thing. And then it goes to Minnesota, and then it goes to Dallas, and it kind of just snowballed on us. And uh, you, you've been the same, same place as me this week, just kind of stunned. And you're talking to people, and nobody really knows what to say or what to do. And you uh, see the, the reports, and you see social media and all that stuff. And, um, you know, the events... In and of themselves, I like. I just really want to focus on our city for a few minutes. Um, you know, I was planning to come in, and uh, we kind of had this kind of had the summer mapped out in terms of topics, and um, was going to get back on the practices of the church series, and and then this just really seems to be a week in Baton in the history of Baton Rouge that will that was pivotal in some ways. It's one of those weeks that will be referenced uh, for a long time. And uh, so for the, I mean, this is what the, the church should be talking about this. And I'm afraid that if we don't talk about it and we don't embrace it, we're going to kind of miss out on it a little bit, you know, because the event, like the events that happened, specifically the shooting here in Baton Rouge, I mean, that's a devastating thing in and of itself. And then you have the larger, like, dialogue that followed, and in many ways, like that has been equally devastating. When you see, you see the things people are posting on social media, you hear the, the things people are saying to one another and the attitudes about what's gone, gone on, and um, you overhear things that you... Uh, you're just, it's, just, it's just the weirdest thing, I think. And um, I think it, this reminded me of something that uh, is sort of random, but I think maybe it'll make sense. When I was in college, there was this group of girls that went one weekend home with one of them. You know, it was like four or five of them went home with this girl for the weekend. And this girl's mom was like a, like a makeup artist, right? Like, was like super into it and could just do all this amazing stuff with makeup. And they, they came back and they were talking about this mirror that she had. And it's like a normal mirror, but it had all these lights on it and stuff. And they were like, you flip this thing on... And you see everything happening on your face, you know. It was like this illumination that was, like, terrible. You know, they all came back talking about how much they hated that mirror because it just exposed all kinds of things that normal light maybe they had missed or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, of course, here's this mirror designed to help makeup artists do their thing. And here were these college girls coming back being like, I don't ever ever want to see myself in that kind of light again because uh, it just exposed too much. And it seems to me like that is what has happened this week in our city. That one of those lights got flipped on and we're seeing things that maybe 
Uh, we're seeing things that have been existing for a long time, but maybe stuff we've been trying to look the w- other way about. Maybe things we wanted to assume weren't there or hope that weren't there or pretend that they aren't there. We've seen some reality that others live in all the time. And so that, to me, is, it's really it's about both. It's about the shooting, but it's also about the, the state of our relationships in our city and how segregated and split we are and, and a lot of things that have been lying beneath the surface. And it's like God just like turned on this light and said, okay, we're not going to, I'm going to use this to make you look at what's really going on and what are you going to do about it. And that's what I keep thinking about is that he has exposed a lot of these fractures so that we can't look away. And we've got to pay attention to it. Like We absolutely must pay attention to what's going on. And that, when I say that, I'm not being corrective, because I don't get the vibe that we are wanting to just ignore this at all. I, from talking with you and, and, and just interactions here and there, and even just seeing what you're, what you're putting on social media and those kind of things, um, I can tell that our church wants, we want it, we want to, steward this, maybe for lack of a better term. But it's not always clear what to do, you know. Especially for a church that's mostly white, you know. Like, I think there's a, a little bit of, like, what, what do we do about that? Um, I grew up I grew up in Central, which was not the Central that it is now. Like, it was much more of, like, a country town. It was a lot smaller. There just, it just wasn't, you know, didn't have its own school district. It didn't have a lot of restaurants, and it didn't have... A lot of intersections with lights, you know, that kind of stuff. It had a lot of cows, a lot of trees. Um, and it was like, like a mostly, mostly white community. I went to an elementary school that was mostly white. Went to a church that was 100% white. And so I come through there. I go to sixth grade. And I go to a middle school that's in the middle of the city. It's like over, uh, it's not in existence anymore, but it's over where Exxon is on, in North Baton Rouge. And so I go from a school that's probably 95% white to a school that's probably 30% white. And as a sixth grader, like that was a, complete, like a completely different cultural experience for me. And so the first couple of weeks of middle school, like I was like, I didn't know what was going on, not in a bad way. I had just never, never experienced a culture other than my own. And I always thought cross, cross-cultural experiences were for, like, traveling to Asia or something, you know, or, like, you go to South America or something. I didn't think it was just getting on a bus, riding across town, and here I was in a completely different atmosphere, you know. And so I, I was there for three years, you know, and... Came, like, came out of that whole experience, I feel like just very different, and like for the better. And I remember I was at church, I was sometime in my middle school years, I was sitting there, I was at our church, and I, I looked over, and there was one of our guys who uh, had come through the youth group, he had gone into the military, and he was in for the weekend. He, and every now and then he would come back, and he would always wear his uniform to church, you know, and everyone would applaud him, you know, rightfully so. And it was, just, it was kind of a cool thing. You look forward to him, you know, coming in. And one time he came in, everyone got excited, and he had two friends with him. And the two friends were black. And so he walked in and goes over and sits down, him and his friends, they sit down. And I saw people get up 
and walk out of the building. Like people around and walk out of the building. And I was sitting there as a you know, junior high kid, and I saw that, and I was like, what, what happened? You know, like I, I, it was very confusing to me. And I just observed it. That was all I did. I didn't, didn't comment on it, nothing like that. And so I remember asking my dad, I was like, hey, this happened. I don't understand that, you know. And he said, well, he said, our church has a policy that, that it only allows white members and I looked at him, and I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's like a rule? And he's like, yeah, it's a rule. He said, in fact, there was a time when they would post deacons outside to make sure that only white people were, like, coming in the building. And I was so confused. And I'm still confused. And I was hopeful a couple years later when a new pastor came in. He was there at the reunion. And that was one of the things that he changed. He's like, we're changing this for sure. And, and so that was encouraging. But come to find out that there are a lot of churches in our town who had that same policy and posted those same men out front. And it was known in the white community and in the black community that there were churches that were white churches and churches that were black churches. And if I grew up around that, and a lot of you grew up around that, then that's still lingering. I talked to a pastor in town a while back who's, like, he was talking about trying to engage the neighborhood in his church, and he said, he said you'd be surprised how many times you're talking to someone who is uh, black, Latino, Asian, whatever it is, in, in our community, and you try to get them to come to our church, and they reference the fact that our church used to post guards outside on the steps to keep anyone who wasn't white from coming in. He said, these aren't people, these aren't people in their 80s. These are people in their 20s. He said, it's known. It, it permeates. Those, those traditions and those mindsets and those things have been passed down and adopted, and, and sometimes it's blatant, and sometimes it's real subtle. And this week, the light got flipped on, and you began to see it. You began to see people's comments and people's attitudes about, uh, not about the shooting as much as just about these cross-cultural things that shows that racism is alive and well in our city. That shows that while in some ways we have progressed, in other ways we have not. And from my perspective as a pastor in the city of Baton Rouge, I think this is a failure on the, on the part of the churches to really embody the gospel in every way for a long time. And so I believe if God has flipped the light on, if he's used this to help expose some things, then we have got to pay attention to it. So we know this. We know in Colossians 3.11, you don't need to turn to it, just let me read it to you, that this is the reality that the gospel has called us to. It says, here there is, no, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Like that's the gospel that Christians in, in America, but let's focus on our city, that Christians in Baton Rouge are supposed to be grabbing onto and the embodiment of is saying the, the skin color, the where you're from, the how your family does it versus my family does it, the how your neighborhood your part of town, that kind of stuff. Those kind of things can be different, but they cannot be divisions. 
Our gospel puts us all in the same place. And yet, in our city, clearly, there's a still, we're letting those kinds of divisions happen. And even in our churches, you know, and this is not an indictment against our church because we're mostly white. It's not against an indictment against a church that's mostly black. It's really not, it's, that's not a lobby to try and like, we need to just mix it up more. It's really about like what's happening even, I'd be all for us mixing it up, just by the way. But in terms of what's happening as we leave our places of worship, there's obviously that segregation and intentions that exist and in very unhealthy ways, and we've seen it this week. And it's just been very sobering. And I hope it's been sobering for you. Like, like the kind of sobering that really makes you, makes you more than sad. You know, the kind of sobering that makes you, like, angry, you know. To see the enemy at work, to see the, the lingering of our past continue to be a problem. The fact that there's still just shrapnel and baggage that we carry with us. And um, In terms of what do we do about it, I believe that we need to connect and embrace the heaviness. We can't shrug it off. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that's bringing the weight to us. Like that's God being being sad for us. That's God's, uh, it's His heaviness, it's His conviction. It's God as the one who's used this to turn the light on, and now He's saying, yeah, do you, do you see the, the burden that I have for my people? Do you see the burden that I have for this city? Do you see what, what I have known is going on, but maybe some people have tried to pretend like it's not, and so I'm just, I'm just not going to let you look the other way anymore. And for those who have been looking at it head on, I think it's, it's almost refreshing. You know, the weight is like, good. Now more, there's more people who realize that um, our city is not what it should be. And the churches are not what they should be, especially in this area of life. And so I don't, I don't want, uh, please don't hear me saying, like, this is not a beat down for our church. I think if you've been feeling heavy this week, I think we need to like embrace that and not pretend it's not there. You know, we have to say, yeah, let's 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 weep with those who weep. Let's let the grief that comes with seeing that reality, let's let it sink in. Let's sit under it and feel it deeply. If God is sad, then we too should be sad. Um, in Second Chronicles, you know, there's a story about Jehoshaphat I've talked about for a long, long time. It's just been very, very good to me. You know, God's used that story a lot, and I've tried to pass that on. And um, you know, they, Jehoshaphat is is the king, and they get word that there are three different armies coming at him, and they aren't sure what to do. And so there are some things that he leads the people to do in response to this kind of like big, mysterious unknown. And I don't know if, if this is the way that you feel, but I kind of get the sense that it's the way some of you feel. You have this big thing that you're seeing, and you're like, okay, this, this breaks my heart, but what are we supposed to do? Like, how, do you, how do you engage something that is so big you know, and so weighty? And so Jehoshaphat calls a fast, you know, declares a fast for his people, and he calls them to pray. And I think that's a pretty good place for us to begin tonight. 
to begin as a church and kind of our first like Sunday gathering after this has happened is what are we going to do going forward? Not that we're moving on. You know, when someone says, oh, we just need to move on, that implies that you don't, like, that you kind of leave it behind. How do we move forward, like bring it with us into the future as a church? Um, so pastorally, I kind of wrestled with what's the best way to do this. And so I'm going to go with what I believe the Spirit is leading me to do. And so I uh, hope that's okay. We're just going to spend some time praying. And then we're going to sing. And then we're going to look at the Bible a little bit more. And then we're going to sing some more. And just see what God can do in us. But if the first part is really going to be kind of hanging out in this world of letting the grief and the, the weight of this week like, let it do what it's supposed to do. And a lot of you have been there already. And this will just be kind of a continuation of that, you know, in some ways. And so uh, I'm going to lead us through that, that, uh, that Acts prayer. Adoration and confession and thanksgiving and um, supplication that we talked about a few weeks ago. I'm just going to guide us through that. Some of it I'll do. Some of it I'll ask you to do. Um, I'm just going to walk us through those four things. And so if you want to come down here and you want to kneel, uh, come on now. Uh, if you want to stand as we pray, if you want to kneel where you are, if you just want to sit where you are, whatever, whatever prayer posture you want to come into. But I think this is a moment for our church and for our city that we need to steward well. And so we're going to do that in part through praying together. And so I'm going to pray the first part. I'm just going to take adoration myself, and you can just uh, amen, or that's right, or whatever affirmations you want to do, you can grunt, whatever, whatever you want to do. I don't want this to be a thing where you're just waiting for me to stop praying. I want you to pray with me, and uh, so let's pray together, and I'll just be the lead on that. So in terms of adoration, Father, we look to you, and... Um, it's just kind of amazing that you, that you do what you do and you are who you are. A week like this, I don't know why you haven't just given up on us. And I know this is just, this is just a drop in the bucket compared to what's going on all around the planet all the time. I'm just amazed at your faithfulness. Because I think I would have given up a long time ago. And I think we all kind of feel the same way. So I thank you, Father, that you are just constantly good. We thank you for your love. For the fact that you love everyone involved. That we can't even really grasp how you feel about us. How you feel about Alton Sterling. How you feel about his family, how you feel about his kids, how you feel about Officer Lake, Officer Salamani, and their families, how you feel about everyone that's marching right now uh, toward the Capitol, how you feel about uh, all of our police officers, how you feel about us in this room. I mean, it's just amazing, and it goes out from there. So God, your holiness, your, your infinite love, your capacity to be everywhere at once and deeply connected to us is just amazing. And so our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy and you are good. 
We know that you are sovereign over things, which does not always make sense to us. But I'm thankful to know that you are uh, involved and you are with us in our sadness. You are with us in pain. You are with, with us in triumph. You're with us all the time. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you that we can know who you are, that we can be known by you. We thank you that you're the kind of God that we can come to in times where we aren't sure what to do. So just like Jehoshaphat and, and his leadership and his people, and they got together, God, we come to you and we say, we don't know what to do. Uh, we're looking at you. Like our eyes are focused on you. And we're trusting you in every way. So we move on to the next letter in confession. And let me just encourage you and push you a little bit. What do you need to confess regarding the call to racial reconciliation in our city? It could be racist attitudes. It could be things that were exposed in you through the events of this week. It could be a general apathy toward uh, this need that exists among, among us. I mean, whatever your heart and mind jump to in regard to confession, just tell him. Confess it and ask for help in repenting and changing. Lord, we confess our sins to you, which are known to you already, but it's important that we articulate them to you and acknowledge the different ways where we have been contributing to the problem and ask for your help in repenting and changing and being a part of your ambassadors who are here to bring the gospel of reconciliation to those around us. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. And God, we move to the next, uh, the next letter, Thanksgiving. God, I'm grateful for our Savior, Jesus, who has saved us from the brokenness that we've seen on display. We've seen so many reasons, Lord, why you came to die. And I'm thankful that we have hope in a Savior who is real and we know Him and He's in us and we know Your name. I'm thankful, God, for the leadership in our city and their response as we have people that You have put in place uh, to lead us forward. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for our law enforcement officers. I'm thankful for Hunter for Darren and for Daniel and for Jimmy and for the many people that we know and that we love who are, uh, who are serving us in those really, really difficult ways. I pray that you would help them to be light and, and salt, that you would uh, just empower their efforts. And God, I thank you for them. God, I'm thankful for the churches who all over the city today are praying and are, are stopping their normal rhythms of what they do and, 
desiring to pay attention to what you're doing among us. Thankful for the pastors who have been on the front lines this week. Um, thankful for uh, leadership all over, all over the church and in the city. And I'm thankful that we live in a country that gives us the freedom to speak up. Thank you for those opportunities. Thank you that we can gather here and pray and come to you and, and just engage in this part of the, the process. God, we're thankful for the hope that we have in the gospel that you provide to us. And we thank you for hearing and responding to our prayers. We pray that we would continue to be grateful to you. And now let's move to the last, last part of our prayer. What, what do we need God to supply? You take a minute and you just ask Him, think about what do you need Him to supply in your life moving forward with, with what's going on. Just ask Him to provide. God, you are the supplier of all our needs. And we ask for these things that have been lifted up. We, add, uh, we ask that you supply comfort for the Sterling family as they grieve. That you supply mercy for Officer Lake and Officer Salamani as they process everything that's going on. That you supply protection for our officers who continue to serve us in our city. That you supply us with courage, especially for our community leaders as they lead us forward. That you supply a very obvious presence of the church in Baton Rouge, that we would model the gospel of reconciliation. Ask you to supply grace, that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry as the dialogue continues. That you would supply opportunities for us in this room to make a long-lasting difference. That you would supply wisdom to know how to talk to our kids so that they don't make the same mistakes and can truly walk in the light with one another. That you would supply faith for those who want to throw in the towel because of all this. That the fruit of your Spirit in us, that you would supply a brightness and a clarity of our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And that you would supply hope. God, we love you. We thank you for your stewardship of what's going on in the city, for using this to flip the light on, to expose some things. And pray that you would help us as we continue to try and steward it well. We pay attention that we would run toward the difficulty, that we would uh, embrace the grief that comes with all this. We would not shrug it off, and that this would be a, a turning point for us as individuals, for us as a church, for the church in our city, and for our city as a whole. We love you, and we pray all this in your beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand together.
We're going to sing together a little bit. So that story in 2 Chronicles, he called the people to pray. And you may recall that as they're praying, uh, someone had a word from the Lord. And the word was, march to the battle. God's going to fight for you, but you've got to show up for it. Okay? So what they do after they're praying is they kind of gather their wits about them. They start marching toward what should be sudden death because you have three different armies coming after them. And he puts the worship leaders at the front. And the worship leaders, uh, not because he wanted them you know, to be in danger, but at the front of the army, uh, everyone's coming behind them, and the people are basically singing on their way to the battle. And so, uh, not to embody that too much, but I think there's something significant about being like, okay, what did they do? They prayed, so we've prayed. What did they do? They, they sang. They, just, they expressed themselves. They, they expressed their, their, their need for God, the, the glory of God, the goodness of God. And that had, it had to do something inside of them as well. The people of God do not worship and sing uh, without being moved somehow. So perhaps in us singing a little bit, we can kind of work through some of what we've been praying for. And we're moving in a direction, the fact that we grieve with hope. That's a part of being a Christian. It's both of those things happening. And so as we sing and as we just kind of relax into it a little bit, let's, let's just ask the Lord to use this time to continue uh, to move us forward. If you have a Bible, if you have a Bible nearby, we're going to be in the book of Micah for a few minutes together. Micah chapter 4. Nice. So if our time together so far has been about maybe grieving, and we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 that when we grieve the loss of someone, someone passes away, that as Christians, when you're grieving the loss of a Christian, you have this mixture of grief and hope. But I think the application of grieving with hope is more broad than that. I think there's, that, that can be applied to a number of uh, situations, a number of things that's going on. And I think that we have to be able to do both. That if we're going to let the, the grief of the Holy Spirit and the sadness of God flipping the light on and showing us what's been going on, if we're going to let that sink in deeply, we have to, to have hope in there as well because that is the message that God has given to us. That is a part of what we are ambassadors uh, to bring to one another. And, and so, um, as a Christian, we experience the heaviness of grief and the power of hope. And we have to keep in mind that as we are moving forward uh, with what's going on, that history has a definite trajectory. History has a definite trajectory. We can't lose sight of where this story arc is headed and know how these events can fit into his plans for his people. The story arc is one of redemption, one of reconciliation, one of forgiveness, one of the world being set right side up. You know that God created the world, that sin flipped it upside down, and God is setting things right again. He's done it through the cross, he's doing it through the church, and then at some point... Uh, all of that will come to this magnificent conclusion. And so 
It has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. And so this week for us, this moment in time for us as a city fits into that trajectory, into that storyline. This is a part of something that is headed in a definite direction. And it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to look at what's going on and just be like, how in the world is this ever going to get better and lose heart? Jesus and Paul both offered uh, warnings against losing heart. And they offered truth and perspective and encouragement so that the people of God would not lose heart because of what's going on. And they would remember where this is going and that this is a part of it. And that they would have hope pushing more deeply into the here and the now. And that's my aim in the next few minutes as well. Is that we would embrace the grief, but we would be those who grieve with hope. Because that is who we are. So in the book of Micah, uh, which might seem like an odd choice, uh, I understand that. You have this, uh, this prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah. You have a very similar passage of scripture in Isaiah 2. Um, and it, so it's, you know, there's some debate as to, you know, who, who said it first, right? Isaiah or Micah, or did they both steal it from somebody else? Or who's, most people think Micah wrote it, so we're going to go with that. Um, and so you have this, this theme throughout the book of Micah that is about God's judgment and God's forgiveness. That God is the one who is, is showing Israel their sin, over and over and over again. Um, and he's also the one who is gathering them together in forgiveness. So he's like this parent who's constantly looking at his people and saying, Hey, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you your fault. And you're not going to like it because no one likes to see their faults. I'm going to show you your fault, but I'm also going to be the one that puts you back together again. And so for Israel, it was a lot of times it was he would use these outside um, nations and their armies and their leaders and stuff to come in and like trample through Israel. And he was like, there's this, this up and down history of all these, these times where Israel is in this state of idolatry. A foreign nation comes in and God uses that like destruction in a lot of ways to get their attention, bring them back to covenant faithfulness. And in their return to covenant faithfulness, he begins to bless them again. And, and that's just the cycle that Israel goes through. And that's a lot of what the Old Testament shows us. And so here in Micah, you have like, both of those things kind of happening. God's saying he's their judge, he's their, their disciplinarian, he's their parent. He's saying, hey, I love you enough to show you when there's a problem, and I love you enough to make it right again. And so that's kind of what's going on. And so in Micah 4, we have this, this look forward to something that is going to happen with the people of God. And it's not just with them in that particular time. It actually is looking forward to like Jesus' establishment as Messiah, Jesus' reign. In other words, he's pointing forward to what we're experiencing right now as Jesus is on the throne of heaven overseeing the universe. And so we can, we can identify with this passage of Scripture in some pretty, some pretty cool ways. Uh, so let's, let's read it together and see how hope is infused into our grief to kind of give us some direction. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. 
And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many people and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk, each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I love it. I don't understand all of it, but I love it. It's pointing forward to now that the Messiah has established himself as king of the universe. He is establishing himself through the church, and he will once and for all bring it to a close. And that is why we have hope here today. That the way it is now, this fractured, broken city that's all upset and angry and pointing the finger at each other and all this kind of stuff... That's not what he has for us. This is not where it ends. The ark goes forward. The story is being written. This is part of it. Let's go slowly just for a few minutes through this. Verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So the latter days, that's the, the age of the Messiah. That's right now. There's the last days, and that's the part that's to come. But so right now, he's looking forward to right now. And then when it says that the, uh, the mountain of the Lord will be established as the highest of mountains, at that point in time, the gods, that were, you know, the idols that were worshipped, you know, they thought they lived in the mountains. And so I'm saying, you know, it's... As the, Messiah, as the age of the Messiah is, is like working itself out, as the latter days come, all those idolatrous uh, gods, the things that are worshipped by people, they're going to continue to prove themselves false. Now you might be thinking of little statues. You might be thinking about the almighty dollar. Whatever idolatry you want to think of, God is saying that every one of those little mountains is going to prove itself to be completely false. And it will be a continual emergence of God as the, as the God above all gods. And so we can count on the wheels coming off of all these things that people are putting their faith in. And putting their trust in. And looking to for security and for love and for value and all that kind of stuff. We can watch it continue to break apart. And then there we stand holding out to them the one true God, the one true Messiah, the one Redeemer, the one who can fix and has fixed and will fix what is going on. Uh, That is a part of what is happening here. And when it says that the people shall flow to it, here's this high mountain, and what happens, like nothing flows up the mountain, everything flows down the mountain, and in this really just phenomenal way, people are going to be drawn upward to him. It's almost like it's almost countercultural. It's almost like one of those things where we're just going to like shake our heads and be like, "What is going on?" 
How in the world is this? Ha- this should not be happening, but yet it is happening. There was a missionary I, I've talked about uh, who's serving in South Africa, and he said, hey, look, he said, watch what happens in the Middle East. Watch as every Muslim nation, as Islam slowly destroys itself and pushes all these people running for their lives, they're going to run into countries where Christian missionaries and churches are waiting, waiting for them with the gospel. He said, Islam will, will, will drive more people to Christianity than Christianity will drive people to Christianity in a lot of ways. And my mind just exploded. I was like, that should not be happening. But he's like, no, we're seeing it. Like, it's, that's what's going on. It's this kind of stuff. People are flowing up a mountain. But that's the story. That's the arc. That's the trajectory that this week fits into. Verse 2. It says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord for Jerusalem. Many nations, all right, that's all kinds of people. That's all kinds of people. So many nations, we can think globally. Many nations, we can also think within our own city. How many nations do we have represented in our city? A lot. And if you go back to ancestry, we have like even a lot more. Like it's just amazing that the nations are no longer separate, even like they were in this time. The globe is being stirred up constantly, and so many nations drawn to him. That there's this desire to go to God that continues to deepen, a desire to learn about God and His ways. Could it be that through these events, the church makes the gospel intriguing? People are like, I kind of want to know more about why, like, why you are the way you are. That those kinds of opportunities we can be looking for and asking for, that's a part of the story he's writing. Look at verse 3. He shall judge between many people and, so, and shall decide for strong nations far away. Okay, so he's the, he's the authority, like he's the one that we're looking to. And look at, look at like this is, a lot of people I know, this is like one of their favorite things in the whole Bible. It says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because they don't need their spears and their swords or their guns anymore. But there will come a point when it's just like, we just don't need them. And I'm not, this is not like Second Amendment gun control thing or whatever. Just think about this. That there will not be a need for swords or spears or guns anymore. Why? Look at the next part. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Like they just become unnecessary. Because we're not fighting each other. Look, that's the story we're tied into. That's part of the hope that we have. This is where it's going. And you look at this week and you're like, how is it going there? That's where our faith kicks in. It's going there. It may seem like a setback, but we can also look at it like completely different. Like, hey, now's our chance. Like, this is an opportunity for us. And we have to know that that's what we're aiming for. It's a point where, like, those guns, are, they just hang on the wall. Maybe they're used to hunt, or maybe, but they're just not used for violence. There's an artist in Mexico who, um, he did this like turn in your gun campaign kind of thing, and they offered in exchange these coupons for like uh, electronic stores or something like that, and it was like one of those gun exchange t- kind of things, and the artist took, it was over 1,500 guns, he took them, 
melted them down, and made shovels. Made shovels and sent them around to schools and uh, like, like art schools and like public schools and all this kind of stuff and asked that they use the shovels to plant trees. So you got kids planting trees with shovels that used to be guns. And I read that article and I was like, man, that's like, that's like Isaiah 2. That's Micah 4. Like that's, what a beautiful set of imagery. And you can go, Google that story sometime. It's amazing. You can see all the pictures. It's phenomenal. But that's a part of what we're headed is where we're not learning war anymore. We're not learning violence. We're not learning to be against each other. It's just not even being taught. There's kids in this room, there's kids over there that they need to learn. You need to talk to your kids about this stuff. This is, the, this is prime time to be having conversations. Like I told this story about how when I was a kid and I saw something that was weird and I asked my dad about it and we had a conversation about it. And I learned so much from going to, going to a different kind of middle school and and having just different cultural experiences, and those kinds of things are formational, and now is a great time to be forming things the right way instead of having to tear them down and rebuild them again. So, verse 4, I'm just going to keep going. Otherwise, I'll hang out there a long time. Verse 4, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Kind of a weird phrase, not super weird in the Bible. Shows up a couple other times. Vines and fig trees and those kind of things were symbols of, of times of prosperity and peace. When you had a vine to tend to, when a, when a tree was producing figs, like those were good stretches of time in Israel. So saying there's coming a point where People are going to, they're just going to relax. They're going to, they're going to take their shovels, you know, and their garden tools that used to be weapons, and now they're going to tend the gardens, and the gardens are going to grow. And they're going to sit in the shade, and they're not going to worry, be fearful anymore. That no one should be afraid. No one in any neighborhood, no one in any line of work, no kid, no adult, no one should be afraid. And so the church should be working for a, this kind of like peaceful, prosperous community and city where people aren't afraid of each other. They're not afraid of things. That's the story. And why? It says, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, because God has said it. And then verse 5. For all the people walk, each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That as the false gods prove themselves to be false and the wheels come off of all these different idols, we're there walking together, inviting people in. being like, hey, you don't have to walk by yourself. I know your life just fell apart because your idol broke your heart like they always do. You can come with us. Come on in. That our homes are inviting, that our neighborhoods are inviting, that our church is inviting, that our community groups are inviting. That everything we're doing is like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. That's the story. That's what we're a part of. That's what we're welcoming others into. And our stewardship of these days is crucial. Because you know what? I think that people are tender right now. 
I mean, people are, you know, the, even, the, even the loud people on social media, you know, even the ones who are, are just like, kind of just the most aggressive, I, I, I really believe people are, ten, are tender. They really, I think they want truth. I think they want direction. I think they want to know what to do and how to feel and how to think and what's going to happen next. You can sense the fear, the unknown that's in front of us. And what if the church was at the, like, at the front of the community, like in us moving forward? What if we're the ones that are saying, I know everyone is terrified, but we're, we're not. I mean, the unknown is always scary, but we know who's in the unknown. We know what's ahead, so we're, just follow us. Follow our lead. You know? we'll, we'll, we know where to go. You don't have to be boastful about it, but be confident. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on our God, and so we're just going to keep following Him. Because that's where our story is headed. I think that this can you know, be a, a turning point. I think it changed the game in our city. I think that this could be a morphing of this ethos in Baton Rouge that is so weird and broken and sinful. This could be, like we could look back in 20 years and say, you know when everything really changed? It was that terrible week. When Alton Sterling was killed, and we all kind of flipped out. Like, that's when the, the conversations got healthy. That's when we slowed down a little bit. That's when the churches stepped to the front. That's when sanctuaries became sanctuaries. You know, that's when the church became more relevant. That's when the workplaces and the neighborhoods and the schools, that's when things really just began to to turn in a better way. And it must be important to us. And I hope that that's one of the byproducts of this, that, that this whole thing becomes more important. Wherever you were, you know, if you're like, wow, it was on level 10 for me already. Now I'm at a 12. Good. That's good. But if you were on a 1, I hope that you're like up. I hope that, that this importance continues to evolve because of the story that God is writing. Like, this is huge for us. And so my prayer, pastorally, is that, is that our congregation would steward it well. And I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking for it. Not like I'm looking at y'all doing I'm looking at for us. Like, how do, what do we as a church, what do, we, what do we as a mostly white church have to do to make this what it needs to be? And I hope that you're looking for that, for that in your individual lives and your families and our community groups. I just think this is massive and important. That we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Like that we're excited about the pain. Isn't that dumb? <laughs> Isn't that a dumb thing to say? But that we're excited about how painful this week has been. And not in a way that's dismissive of anything that's going on. It's, no, we're going to embrace it and we're going to realize that, man, the hope of Jesus it's showing up differently right now. And so we can't forget the trajectory. We can't forget the story. We can't forget where all this is headed. And I don't think you've forgotten. I don't get the sense at all from this group of people that you're like, oh, yeah, no, I just hadn't really been paying attention. I think, I think we've been paying attention. And so maybe this is like a good, maybe this is just good for us to do both. There's grief and there's hope before we're sent back out into a city that's 
just like it was before we came in here, you know. But we maybe can be different and uh, take something good to the streets, right? So we're going to respond a little bit. We're going to sing like we do. Be communion down here in a few minutes. You are invited to step and take communion. If you're a Christian, that is, that is your table to step to. If you want the grace of Jesus, like if you are looking at the body and the blood of Christ and saying that is the solution that leads to all the other solutions, that's what the city needs, and you want, like he's saying, come take this, and you're taking that in, then that's for you. If you want to come kneel down and pray some more, you can do that. If you want to stand and sing, however you want to respond, that's your deal. Uh, But let's spend these last few moments together singing, praying, taking communion, preparing for re-entry into this city of ours. All right, let's stand together as the band comes back. Lord, what a what a beautiful story that you are writing. Only you can take brokenness and pain and difficulty and uh, grief and infuse it with a hope that has its origins in a completely different place. That we as uh, citizens of your kingdom ambassadors that you have here uh, in Baton Rouge, that we look to you and we're hoping in you and trusting you as we move forward. We thank you for the grief, but how amazing to know that this is all headed towards something glorious. Pray that as we take communion, as we pray, and as we sing, you would remind us of the things that we need giving us the grace to sustain us and propel us into the week ahead and the city around us that is continuing uh, continuing to try to find its bearings. So as we engage in these different things, Lord, where your will be done, your kingdom come in these moments. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So you can come and you can pray. Communion will be down here waiting for you. Uh, Let's just respond in these different ways in our closing moments together.